friends, welcome back to another episode of In No Hurry. I'm your host, Cole Douglas Claiborne. This is episode 15, and I'm so happy to be doing this with you all. Thank you to all of you who have been listening and supporting the show each week. It really means a lot. The music that you're hearing is from my good friend, Ryan Allwart. Super grateful he's letting us use this music each week. Hey, we've talked a lot about identity on this podcast, and more specifically, our identity in Christ. This week, we'll get to hear from author Daniel M. about his new book, You Are What You Do, and Six Other Lies About Work, Life, and Love. Daniel is a pastor at Beulah Alliance Church in Edmonton, Alberta, and has written a couple other books, No Silver Bullets and Planting Missional Churches. His new book addresses seven lies that we are told and what causes them to be so prevalent. You are what you do. You are what you experience. You are who you know. You are what you know. You are what you own, you are who you raise, and you are your past. I loved this book so much, and I'm so thankful Daniel is here to share some thoughts about it and why this book is so necessary right now. If you've ever found yourself placing your identity in any of those seven lies, I cannot recommend this book enough. There's so much truth in here about contentment and how we can find that in Jesus. It's chock full of scripture and it's written anecdotally, which I think is a great way to kind of understand this topic. So thank you guys so much for listening. Here is my conversation with author Daniel M. Well, Daniel, I loved this book, You Are What You Do, and Six Other Lies About Work, Life, and Love. How did you know that this was the book that God was calling you to write right now? It, I kind of just stumbled into it, actually. I was speaking at a conference for pastors and leaders out in Atlanta, and I came across research on the gig economy. And as I was pouring through that, I was like, wow, look at all the implications that this has on leadership. And as I was working through that and preparing for that talk, and I ended up um, presenting it, my editor was actually in the audience and and he shot me a, a, t- a text message afterwards and he's like, dude, like this needs to be your next book. So as we began talking through it, uh, my other two books were very much focused on leaders, pastors and church leaders. But as we were talking about it, he was like, hey, dude, who, what are you going to who are you going to write to? Are you going to write to the same audience? Or are you going to write to those that you're preaching to at your church, um, those in our culture, those in our society, and whether they're Christian or not? I mean, who are who are the people that you are writing to? So, so that's where as we began really digging, as I began really digging through the research, I was like, okay, you know what? There's actually broader societal implications uh, to Christians and non-Christians, to all people, regardless of their faith background, about this book. So I ended up writing not a leadership book, uh, but more of a, a general a general book. Yeah, and I think what's awesome about this book is that you you reach, like you said, a wide variety of people. I mean, mm-hmm. people who could be high school students, all the way up to parents. And mm-hmm. there's so much truth throughout this book. And even like, I'm not a parent yet, but I can still learn something from your chapters about parenthood and parenting, Mm -hmm. because I'm hoping eventually one day that I will be a parent. But I think as a child, it also kind of sheds light into the the, the, maybe things that I didn't always notice when I was growing up that maybe my parents did. And so, I mean, you talk a lot about, um, you know, conscious decisions, unconscious decisions that parents make in terms of, um, you know, how they treat their children. And a lot of it is, how they were raised. And it's so fascinating to think about just the differences of how we're raised. And that's just one chapter. I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many things I hear. I mean, you've got, you, you address seven different lies. And I think it's really cool because each of these chapters, it, it, I mean, they could stand on their own, but you do a really good job of weaving all of them together through the common theme of, you know, like you said, the gig economy and how we're all uh, kind of freelancing or doing something else, a side hustle to, to get where we're at. And it creates this whole mindset of, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here that you talk about in terms of identity and how we value ourselves. And for me personally, this book was really timely because I I sent you the article that I wrote a couple weeks ago about comparison. Yeah. And you talk a lot about comparison in this book. And, um, you know, I guess I guess we can kind of start there um, because you in your epilogue, I guess we'll kind of go all the way back to the end of the book. But in your epilogue, you say, how do you think? think your life would be different if you lived according to the way God sees you, what would change? And so much of this book talks about identity and how we 
view ourselves versus how God sees us. Uh, I just, I guess we can kind of start there. You know, I mean, and in my, in my opinion, that's kind of the thesis of the book right there. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we, we view ourselves by, you know, what we do, who we know, how we were raised, all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, I guess how prevalent are these issues? You know, obviously you wrote a whole book about it, but just, mm-hmm, just how mm-hmm. prevalent are these issues that maybe some people don't even realize that they're being affected by these lies that were being fed all the time? Yeah, it's an issue of freedom and flexibility. It's this issue where the gig economy, and for your listeners who aren't aware of that, I mean, we're, we're not talking about high-speed internet. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the gig economy is basically a term right now where if you're self-employed in a part-time or full-time capacity and and you're getting paid for your time, skills, possessions, or expertise, you are a part of the gig economy. So that's about 35% of Americans, uh, of the American workforce, is a part of the gig economy. I mean, that's like 57 million people. Yeah. I mean, that's more people than Canada, Liberia, Greece, and Puerto Rico all combined <laughs> who are yeah. a part of the gig economy. And I, and I share that going back to your question because the core lie of the gig economy, and that's the thing that is weaved all throughout the book, is that, hey, you have unlimited earning potential. You have all the the freedom to make your life the way you want it to be if you want to if you want that new outfit just hustle for it you want you want the latest phone then just gig a few hours you have unlimited earning potential so so what the gig economy promises is hey if you then um with all your free time and with the time you're not doing your nine to five, if you even have a nine to five, uh, if with all that other time, if you gig, then you are going to be in control of your life and you're going to grow. Your freedom and flexibility is going to grow and then you'll be happy. Then you'll be content. Then you'll be satisfied. Whereas, I mean, honestly, it's not true. It, it really isn't true. There's never enough. So these seven lies essentially are tied together through that core a sense of um, a desire for control that we have. Yeah. And, and I, I just like so much of your book is about like that control aspect. And I really liked the chapter that focused on Tiger Woods and his father, because I'm a huge sports fan. And, you know, I, honestly, I did not know all of that about his dad and, mm-hmm. you know, his background. And it's such an illuminating like I, I, as soon as I finished that chapter, I literally said out loud, I said, that is fascinating because I didn't mm-hmm. know that his father was, you know, basically you hear the, the term of parents trying to live vicariously through their kids. Mm-hmm. That was obviously a very extreme example. And I didn't know all that background, I guess, because as I was, I mean, Tiger's always been kind of the, a big athlete in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, but I just never paid attention to his, I just thought he was an uber competitive person, much like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, all those guys. Um, but you, I mean, you mentioned how like his dad's um, inadequacy mm-hmm. led him to be the parent that he did, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I just that that kind of you talk about parenthood like that. I mean, why was why was also that issue something that you felt like? I mean, it was you weren't just talking about parenthood, but you were talking, I mean, you know, a lot of different aspects in that. But why was that issue, you know, one that you also felt was pertinent? I guess in a large, you know, I'm. I, curious how you how you settled on these seven lies but i mean mm-hmm. i guess specifically um this one about you know being raised and all that kind of stuff how did you settle on that particular one as well yeah it all started with the observation of the soccer dad and you know there's movies about that and and so you so you obviously have these or in canada these hockey parents and and you have this yeah. sense <laughs> of um of of kind of like does it really matter? I mean, you look at how other parents react or you look at how uh, even competitive athletes their parents are and the role that their parents have. And one of our friends, I mean, he made it almost to the Olympics, right? So, I mean, and, and we saw how his entire elementary to teenage lives were completely different, completely different than than everyone else. So it, it's just, it's just, it was just fascinating. And it started there. And I was like, why is that the case? And, and is this actually more about the parent or is it more about the kid? And so I combined that with the thought of parenting generally, generally, generally speaking, you parent the way that you've been parented unless you consciously do so otherwise. So both of those together and and added on to the whole fact of the gig economy, where the gig economy is like, you know, core lies, hey, 
here's a life of freedom. Here's a life of flexibility. Here's a life of control. Inevitably, it was like, okay, well, there's something wrong when we begin parenting this way. There's something wrong. So here's an example. You are at a grocery store and you see a child crying or you're at a mall and you see a child making a huge, you know, a huge fuss. Why is it that the parent gets so worked up? And if, if for me, for example, like I'll bribe my kids or I'll be, oh, you, you know, you be quiet. You mean, you know, why are you acting like this? And, and I'm looking around and I'm like, why do, why do I care so much? Why do I care so much about that? It, well, it's because unconsciously underneath the surface, my children's success is my success. Their failure is my failure. And in a sense, how they're acting is a reflection on my parenting. So I kind of quickly with a bandage try to silence them or, you know, or, 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 or try to change what's happening. Whereas at home, if they're doing that, I'm like, well, tough luck, <laughs> right? Yeah. Tough luck. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give in to that. Now, why is it that we do that? Why is it that we turn to embarrassment or guilt or, or shame or, or all these, or, or, or these feelings? Why do we feel these things? And, and why do we sometimes parent via them? Well, it's because of the way that we actually parent um, at an unconscious level, the way that we were parented, unless we consciously do so otherwise. And we sometimes, based on how we weren't parented or, or negative ways that we were parented, we try to, we try to actually fix that through our parenting of our children. And you mentioned this in your book, um, but I mean, people that maybe have struggled with that or, you know, maybe they're harboring bitterness toward their parents. It's, I guess, too easy to say, like, how do we forgive them? But you do address the issue of, I wouldn't say issue, but you address the, the topic of forgiving parents in that setting. You know, um, I guess to kind of summarize, I mean, obviously, we want people to go read the whole book, but I guess to kind of summarize your point there, you know, um, if people are struggling with that, where they might be harboring bitterness toward their feelings or harbor, harboring bitterness toward their parents for maybe how they were raised, what, what's, what's your advice on how to forgive those people? I mean, obviously it's, it's, you could say just, just forgive them, but you know, for some people that have been harboring that bitterness for years, um, you know, how do, how do they move past those feelings? Even if, like you said, whether they're consciously or unconsciously doing something as they raise them, it has a dramatic effect on how somebody is whenever they're an adult, maybe even them as a parent. So, you know, maybe somebody is having a self-aware moment where they realize I'm parenting like my parents and I don't want to parent that way. Um, how do we forgive our parents for that happening? Yeah, at a minimum, we need to forgive our parents for the way that they unconsciously wronged us. Right. So if it's true that we parent the way that we've been parented, unless we consciously do so otherwise, then that means our parents parented us the way that they were parented right. <laughs> as they consciously did so otherwise. And and I don't know about you, but I, the number of self-help books there are for parents these days, uh, it's not what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago for our yeah. parents. and. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, the genre wasn't necessarily there as it is today. So if we at a minimum forgive our parents for the way that they unconsciously wronged us. Right. And and that is our starting point. And, and if we go there, then we need to take a step further too, and forgive them for the ways that they consciously wronged us. Because there are ways, right? There are ways that they've consciously done it and unconsciously done it. So it's important to understand that. Now, to just, I'm not saying sweep everything under the carpet, forgive them and act as if nothing ever happened. And I'm not asking you necessarily to forget or nor do I really expect that reconciliation will always take place because it doesn't. But the one thing that we can do, the one thing that we can control is that first step of forgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you and you also mentioned, you know, forgiveness and reconciliation are two different topics, you know. So mm -hmm. reconciliation kind of takes uh, both parties coming together and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, forgiveness is something that we can do individually. You know, we can choose to forgive somebody and all that kind of stuff. And so yeah, that's it's so interesting because it's almost like parenting is very similar to oftentimes, um, you know, health issues that run in your family are mm. hereditary. And in a sense, it, it's almost like parenting is hereditary in that sense to where oftentimes it can be passed down. And I've had a, a 
lot of interesting talks with my wife just because she studies mental health that, you know, I've learned a lot from that. I mean, I'm not an expert by any means, but it's been interesting to talk to her about the effect that parenting has on children. So I, I you know, just the, 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 the stuff that you address in that chapter was fascinating. And, and what I like about this book, too, is that um, I, I, I like to think that I write anecdotally as well. And so, like, you know, you using the example of Earl, Earl, uh, Earl Woods to mm-hmm. kind of paint that example. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really good way to, to relate. You know, that's a very popular figure that a lot of people know. People, a lot of people know Tiger Woods' story they can relate to that. So, I mean, I just, just to commend you, I mean, I I like the way that you present that and it's a very, very approachable. So, um, I kind of want to go back a little bit to the the topic of of comparison, mainly because for me personally, that has been something that has been at the forefront of my mind. I mean, we're in a world now where so much of what we do is defined by, um, like you said, what we experience and then not only what we experience, but who experiences, experiences it with us or who validates our experience. And that was something that for me, I was falling into that trap. Even as I started this podcast, I was kind of like, why am I so caught up on how many people are listening to this podcast? Why am Mm. I so caught up on how many likes or comments that my posts about this get? Like, why does that matter to me? And and, and so like, I have truly, as I said in my article that I wrote, I have turned off my notifications regarding all that this month, because I'm like, I have to retrain my brain to not care about that. And it's something that was really mm-hmm. shocking that I realized today was that I have had a Facebook account for 13 years. <laughs> so that means for the last 13 years, I have had social, I, I, I don't remember a day that I haven't gone, you know, without checking social media, I have gone 13 years. I don't know how many days that is off the top of my head of checking social media. And I've mentioned this in my article that I wrote, but there are studies that have shown the effect of social media is very, very similar to the effect that narcotic drugs have on us in terms of like the dopamine that we experience and then yeah. trying to wean yourself off of that. Yeah, for a lot sure. of times people experience the, the similar feelings of withdrawal that drug addicts feel, which is mm-hmm. a really scary thing to think about. We may not think yeah. we're doing drugs, but it's very scary. And so the thing that one of the most toxic things that comes out of that is this feeling of comparison. And so you addressed that in your book, you know, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but why why is this something that we struggle with, particularly those in the millennial generation? I mean, as a school teacher, I saw this all the time with my students because they were constantly in fights and they were upset and they were dealing with, you know, true mental ish, mental health issues because of bullying and other stuff going on in social media. I mean, why is this such a prevalent problem in our society? Yeah, well, on the one hand, you touched the normalization that social media, uh, you know, what it's what it's done to us, how it is now normal and uh, how it's actually, I mean, obviously the negative effects that you talked about, but how it's really dictated the way that life is and and even the amount of money that's going into influencer marketing via Instagram Mm -hmm. and Facebook and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, you don't have to pay to be a part of Facebook or Instagram. They're getting their money through advertisers and and through those right. who are boosting or whatever their posts. So when you think about about it from that perspective, because monetization is driving a lot of this, there's actually quite a big benefit toward us being on social media more and more and more. I mean, that's where even you would see Facebook, Instagram, these guys, I mean, their whole point in their business was to get people to be online more often and check their platform. I mean, they used game theory to get there. They used game theory to get us addicted to these things. And and they've actually, with screen time, and now a lot of these apps actually have notifications where you can actually monitor how much time you're spending on it and all that stuff because they see the negative effects that it, this, is, this is doing and how it's affecting and how it's shaping us. I mean, just think Iceland, for example. Like when we were kids, whoever w- talked about Iceland, like whoever wanted yep. to go to Iceland, yet in a, in a, a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking on the book at this conference and I asked, Hey, how many of you would love to go to Iceland? Uh, more than half raised their hands. And I'm like, yeah. Iceland, like literally, why would anyone want to go to Iceland? No one ever talks, talked about it growing up yet now because of Instagram and because yep. of the tourism industry of Iceland, like the Iceland 
tourism industry actually is they're leveraging influencer marketers they're leveraging instagram as a strategy to get people to their country and it's working because you're in your pjs with toothpaste toothpaste on your sweater you know (laughs) on your shirt and you're eating cup ramyun and you're you know for dinner and you're like oh i didn't have anything else in my house or eating cup ramyun and you're you know you're on instagram while you're doing that and you see your friend in iceland in one of those natural hot sauna pools and we're like what the hot springs (laughs) okay i gotta go there yeah (laughs) Yeah. And then, so you feel like you're missing out, like you're inadequate. And so, I mean, and and it's no secret that like, you know, we see everybody's highlight. Like we, yes. everybody talks about that's kind of a, a, an overwrought idea now, but it's true that we are still curating the best parts of our lives yeah. and we're doing it because we think that everybody else has a great life. And I was talking to my wife the other day, I said, I want to know, what the reception would be if I created an Instagram account and all I did was post about the most mundane things in my life, <laughs> you know, like, like just as an experience, as an experiment to see, like, would people actually appreciate somebody being real or do mm. we still value these beautiful experiences where we can live vicariously through other people? And I've had to physically go in and unfollow so many of the travel accounts that I used to follow because it's like, that looks like a whole other world. Yeah. Like I'm sitting here in Southern Kentucky and it's raining outside and I'm, you know, on the couch watching Netflix and uh, this person is taking the most beautiful picture. And it's you know, all like you said, they're anyway. getting, yeah, they're, it's all edited. They're getting paid to do it. So yeah, what happens is we start to, um, like I, I was reading about this where I think it was in the article that I wrote, like people are literally going into debt because of this comparison aspect, they are buying things that they can't afford that they don't need because they want to present themselves as a certain way on social media. And I think about this all the time. Like my wife and I, I'm 30 years old. I do not own a house yet because I can't afford one yet. But I know for a fact there are plenty of people in my age group that have bought houses that they simply can't afford. And I have to think that part of that is that people love to be able to show that they have succeeded and you know buying a house is a big uh, status symbol and what we don't see is that they're going into debt to buy that house and that was a yeah. scary thing like there was a there was a huge amount of debt that people were going into because of social media so yeah. i don't know if you found that in your research as well but yeah well, they're going into debt or they're gigging themselves to death Right. So when you think about it like that, the gig economy, the hustle has become the new credit card. So we actually see with Gen Z that they are a lot more fiscally conservative than uh, older than millennials and and previous generations. That So Gen Z is I mean, they're actually less likely to go into debt because their older brothers or people just ahead of them grew up in a recession. So you actually see younger millennials. Uh, who uh, very younger millennials are very different than older millennials because younger millennials entered the workforce during the recession. And when they would have gotten a full-time job, unfortunately, they were now competing against older millennials, Gen X and boomers who had lost their job, who had more experience. And there's research that shows the generational effects that, uh, you know, graduating from university during a period of recession shows. Now, having said all that, here's the crazy thing. Every time we use our credit card, Every time we use our debit card, these banks and companies are actually collecting data. They're collecting data on our spending patterns. And they can now show us by age group how we are spending our money. And the fascinating thing is that we are now spending more money on experiences than things. Like this is statistically proven from this data, from massive data sets that any doctoral student would drool over, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, literally, I mean, they, it's, it's crazy. We are spending ourselves to death on experiences, yet we're still comparing, right? We're still trying to one-up one another, but once you one-up all your friends, you then try to get a new level of quote-unquote friends that are now ahead of you, and it's just, it's the cycles all over again. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting. You talked about like the idea that we pick our vacations based on what we think is the most Instagrammable location. 
you yeah. know, and like, like you, you, you threw out the, the idea that, you know, if you were given a chance to go on a vacation where it was just you, it was all paid for, but you couldn't take your phone, you couldn't post about it, you couldn't tell anybody about it, or alternatively, you could pay for your own vacation, you could take people, post about it, which one would you choose? Yeah. And the scary thing is that most of us would say, I'd rather just pay for it yeah. so that I can show people. I mean, I guess, why do we have this desire to go? Like, I, I'm so guilty of it where I'm at a concert and rather than watching the concert, I'm filming the concert so that everybody can see the concert that I'm at. And yeah. I'm just kind of like, why am I doing this? Why can't I yeah. just be here at the concert? Why do we feel this insatiable need to share what we're doing with everybody? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because underneath the surface, we have believed the lie that we are what we experience. Right. Uh, we've we've we believe it. Right. We believe it. So we're spending money. We're spending time. We're spending energy toward that. Now, am I saying that our experiences are not a part of us and we can somehow separate ourselves from that? No, no, obviously not. And, and that's why in that example, I think most people would choose to actually go with their friends to be able to talk about it, because, you know, you go to a you go to Fiji. Right. You go to you go to whatever country you want to go to and experience uh, the Colosseum in Italy. I mean, you are wa- going to want to tell people because it it's a part of you now. That memory, that moment, that experience is a part of you. There's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if we build our lives chasing one experience after another experience, what ends up happening is we live lives full of jealousy and envy because we'll never get to what we want to get to or think we need to get to. Right. And so the the obvious hopeful landing point would be contentment. And you mentioned mm. this in chapter five. And one of the lines that I really liked, and I said this out loud to my wife as I was reading it, but you say, contentment is a direction, not a destination. So I guess I should take back. It's not necessarily a landing space, but it's you say it's a direction, not a destination. I guess kind of explain that idea a little bit further and then, you know, how do we, I guess, not necessarily arrive at contentment, but how do we feel content versus this feeling of comparison and jealousy? Yeah, there's Philippians chapter four verses and 11 verses 11 to 13 is, I mean, it's the passage on contentment and, and Paul wrote this. Let me read it for your listeners. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot in any and all circumstances. I've learned the secret of being content, whether well fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. The thing about contentment, um, you're right, it is a direction rather than a destination. The guy here, Paul, the one who wrote it, I mean, he he really did experience the lows and the highs. Like He right. legit knew what he was talking about. So when it as it relates to contentment, it's like, okay, well, how did he find how did he find that contentment? Like, what is that secret of contentment that he discovered. And, and as you read on and, and read through the New Testament, you discover that, that the secret to contentment is actually Jesus. It's not through our experiences. It's not through anything that we desire, any of these lies, anything that we can build ourselves on and build our lives on. And, and, and you know, the people that we respect, we're like, well, if we could just always become a little bit more like that then right then we how many times have we done that right oh i if i just i remember this right i remember as a kid my dad said okay son i will buy you the sega genesis right and i was like <laughs> and he was like but this is the last system console i ever buy you and that's going to have to be enough and i was like okay dad i know i know i've had the nintendo and the super nintendo and this and and that and the atari but you know what you're right if I get Sega Genesis with Sonic the Hedgehog, then trust I, me. Dad, I was going to say you had to have gotten <laughs> Sonic. That. Yeah. 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 And obviously, you know, it, it comes together and, and it's like, dad, then you never have, I'm never going to want another system again. I'm never going to want, an- I'm never going to need another console because what can be better than a Sega Genesis? <laughs> right. And that's what we do in life, right? It's like, oh, this iPhone, I'm never going to need another iPhone or I'm never going to need another car. Or, I'm never going to need if I can. And we use this 
thinking, this contentment thinking to actually rationalize decisions and rationalize the thing that we want to do when in reality we get it a little bit later, we're not going to be content. (laughs) There's going to be something else. And that's why Paul says, hey, the secret to contentment is actually Christ. It's actually Christ. It's not any of these lies that we've talked about here. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love that. Um, and I guess kind of fast forwarding a little bit further in the book, too. Um, this is a this has been a, a relatively common theme in some of my interviewees that I've talked to. But um, back in December, I interviewed an author named Manda Carpenter. She lives in Chicago. And one of the things that she said, um, she wrote a, a devotional called Space. And, and in it, she said something along the lines of our being with God has to outweigh our doing for God or are doing at all. And so you've mentioned, um, you know, we self-help tells us to do, Jesus says done. Yeah. And you mentioned also like, we're not called human doings. We're called human beings. Yeah. You know, we are so ingrained to do, do, do. And, and that part of like, you know, th- this podcast is called in no hurry. And the idea behind that was that so many people live this life where they are constantly on the go on the move, trying to do more, hustle more, all this kind of stuff, God's telling us to just be. Yeah. You know, why was this something that was important for you to address in this book as well? Yeah, it's okay. There's a couple things. Number one, there's that instant, everything is, we're conditioned for the instant. And and that's a little bit, I, I talked quite a bit about that in my previous book, No Silver Bullets. Uh, that I wrote for leaders because it's just, you know, we we try to look for the silver bullet, uh, the silver bullet that's instantly going to change everything for us, the organizations we're working for, you know, all that stuff, right? The, the ones that we're leading. So uh, there's that sense of we are, it's the normal around us. It's the water that we are in, the, the air that we're breathing. There's that side of it. Uh, but the other reason I wanted to address this was uh, partially because of how we are how we've actually taken the variable of time out of decision-making, right? So when it comes to decision-making, you look for, you ask your friends, you pray about it and read the scriptures and you kind of do a pros and cons list. And there's so many different ways that we try to make decisions. In fact, at my church uh, up here in Edmonton, we just finished a whole series on decision-making because it's just such a prevalent thing that I, I honestly, it's no one grows out of. We have to make, I mean, we make over 30,000 to 35,000 decisions every single day. So it's just, yeah, it's just like decisions, decisions, decisions. I mean, your listeners right now are like, do I, am I going to make the decision to keep on listening right now <laughs> or, or am I going <laughs> to turn it off? Right. So here's the thing about decision-making though, right? Because we are now conditioned for the instant, we've actually taken the variable of time out of it. So we're mm-hmm. looking for a decision and the moment we find the answer for the decision that we have been searching for and, and seeking after, we think the time is right now, right? Because everything is right now. If I want to read a book, I will download it right now on Kindle, right? If I want to listen to it, I'll download it right now on Audible. On Amazon, I will literally order something and it'll come tomorrow morning, right? Everything yep. is instant. But the thing is, right, contentment is actually something that comes out of a slow cooker rather than a microwave. Yeah. Right. There's no download button to contentment. It's it, you can't just add it to your cart or pull it out of a vending machine. It's a yeah. direction that we are on as we are pointed toward Jesus. And there's actually as we are pointed toward Jesus and walking toward Jesus toward that direction, there's going to come a point where you're like, oh, actually, why am I not in a hurry anymore? Wait, <laughs> how has how this changed? And you kind of look behind you and you're like, wait, when did that happen? And right. you're like, oh, you know, it might have been that, but you had no idea that that's the process of transformation you're undergoing while you are going through it. Yeah, one of the chapters for the book that I'm writing, and and I had part of this, uh, I pu- had this published in Relevant last summer as well. But I was talking about that idea of waiting on the Lord, and I kind of start with the anecdote that you know we are so conditioned, like you said, like for instance, if I and, and I. I did not even, first of all, I did not realize until I read your book that you could order something on Amazon and it come to you that day. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. And see, living well, in smaller towns, yeah, yeah, I was say, living in smaller towns, I've never known that, which is crazy to me. Um, but like, I was thinking of just like, 
people don't even want to go to a coffee shop and wait for their drink. They want to do it on the mobile order so they can walk in and get it. And then I was talking about how I was, when I was a teacher, you know, kids would turn in a paper. They'd want to know right away what their grade was. I'm like, I haven't had a chance to grade it yet. And so the, for us as Christians, that idea goes into our prayer life. Mm. We ask God for something and we want an answer right away. And then we yep. are upset when we don't get it. And then on top of that, we're upset when it's not the answer that we get. And so the idea that I used was um, kind of this idea of how farmers have to wait for their harvest. Mm. They can't micro, and I use the term, they can't microwave their crops. They yeah. have to wait for those. And so in that waiting, we have to find the contentment. And that's the hardest thing for Christians to do. At least for me, that's one of the hardest things is being patient, being content. Uh, you know, I, it's too, I guess, too easy to say, like, how do we do that? But like, like, you know, what, what are the ways that we can train our hearts and our brains to be content, especially if we're waiting on the Lord to do something, whether that's, you know, we're, we're praying for somebody in our family to be healed from a sickness. We're praying for maybe mm -hmm. it's a job opportunity, anything going on in our life. I mean, how do we remain content in that period of waiting that can feel like it's an eternity? Yeah, one of the things that drives the anxiety and drives that lack of contentment is our persistent prayers. So there's a sense where you read about the widow in the scriptures and and the persistent widow, and you're like, oh, well, the persistent widow, I mean, she just kept on going and going and kind of like the Energizer Bunny and, and going and going and going and asking, and finally she got her answer, so maybe that's how God works, right? We just got to keep on going, 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 going. And yes, there is a sense that we need to pray unseasonally, and but there's also the sense of, hey, if you keep on asking for the very same thing and you're just going through the motions, do you, I mean how do you think God works? Like, do you think, like, yeah. literally, it, it challenges your theology. So it's like, okay, now I'm not saying pray once and just be done with it. That's not the case either. But when you pray, have you genuinely given it to God? And have you genuinely come before him and given this issue that you are dealing with, whatever it is, to him? And then once you do that, instead of every waking moment continually thinking about it and waiting for that answer, let's instead sing Let's instead sing praises to God. Let's instead uh, read the scriptures or let's instead fast. Let's instead practice the Sabbath, practice solitude, practice silence, practice the spiritual rhythms. One of the things, I mean, uh, solitude and silence is, is actually silence is more difficult for me than solitude. But one of the things that I'm doing um, as, as long as I get to the gym early enough, so I'm not perfect at this, but about Tuesday to Friday before I go to work, I'll, I'll go to the gym and after my workout, I'll go into the sauna and I'll just sit there for about five minutes, sometimes 10, sometimes 15. And I'm like, no, I mean, I hate it when guys bring their phones in there. Um, <laughs> right. But I'll just sit yeah. there in silence, meditating, thinking about the word of God. Just if, if I find my mind wanders, I'm saying, Hey, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Or I'm saying, Lord Jesus, you know, and I'll, I'll sing a song in my head or I'll, I'll, I'll pray that prayer. But really it's sitting in that solitude, sitting in that silence and saying, Hey, Jesus, even though I'm here and not doing anything, you are working. You are moving in our midst. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, you have not only created me, but you are sustaining me. So there's a sense of let's have faith that God hears us when we pray. Let's ask others to pray too, and let's be persistent in that. But if we pray harder, that's not going to make God listen more. That's not how God works. Sometimes his timing is way different than ours. So there's that sense of, okay, let's trust him with that and trust that he's heard us. And let's instead just turn our eyes to him. And, and there's going to come a day where we look behind us, right? Like that example, look behind us. Oh, wait, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful I went through that hard time because of this and this and this. So right. that's, yeah, sorry, it's not like a... <laughs> <laughs> no, to add to cart kind of answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's what we're talking about. It should yeah. it shouldn't be that simple, I guess. You know, where you yeah, be too cheap. Yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of want to shift gears here. You know, this is a little bit for me, but also if there's anybody else listening that is a writer as well. Um, like I mentioned before, we started recording. I'm I'm always interested to hear um, people's processes and how they, they get. Their, to their finished product. And I guess um, 
you don't have to give away all your secrets here, but I guess, you know, as, as you've gotten through your writing career, I guess, what have you found is sort of like your routine? I mean, for somebody like for me, I was, and when I was in journalism, it was very different than writing a book because it was very much focused on churning out an article and then starting over on a new one and, and very shorter pieces moving on to the next thing. Whereas a book, it's a lot more of a laborious process where you're spending a lot more time on it, doing a lot more research, and there's just a lot more of a process to it. You know, for somebody who's written multiple books, mm-hmm. um, you know, what have you found as your process that works for you in terms of finding a rhythm to write and research, but also not making this something that you do 24 hours a day? Completely. So here's the thing about books. Articles, and I've kind of looked back on my website and my blog, and I was like, wow, how long have I been doing this for? And I think it went live like 2010 or 2011, or I think in its previous WordPress version, like before I bought my own domain, I think it was like 2007 where I started. So there's that whole Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour rule thing where it's just you kind of you just got to put in your reps or same goes with preaching and every time I preach it's a manuscript so there's I've I've done a lot of writing and I think I've been able to develop a voice over that now by no means am I done even my editor from my last book to this book he's like wow like your writing has improved so much since that last book not that that last book was bad like I'm just quoting what he said he's like but it's 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 changed and I think the more you do it the more it's going to change but here's the thing here's why I'm saying all this honestly if it wasn't for some of the opportunities that presented itself I don't know if I would have sought after writing this early in my life now I'm not saying anything against those who are around my age or younger to not write that's not at all not at all yeah but what's interesting is when it comes to a book and i've really i've really noticed this with my last few you have to live with it right it's like it's you're you 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 write it and you you write it over and over and over again and by the time you're done and then the editing starts and you go through all that and it's just you get so sick of it and then a year goes by and, and then, you know, it gets published and, and then you start talking about it and, and talking, you know, and, and sharing about it. And you're like, man, if you don't believe in what you're writing, like if you don't sincerely believe that this is a message that needs to go out, then why put all the energy and effort into it? I mean, you by the by the end of it all, I mean, unless you're like a New York Times bestselling author, it's you're making less than minimum wage. <laughs> when you put out a book, right? I mean, the average book doesn't even sell a thousand copies. So if you're going to do the laborious task that a book provides or or a book takes to put it out, it's like, okay, do you actually believe that this message is that important and that no one else has written on it in this way that God is actually giving you the responsibility to steward this message, to steward it? Right. And I remember even um, a conversation that my friend had with Gary Chapman. I mean, the guy, the five love languages guy. I mean, the guy's still traveling, traveling around and going to conferences, even just to speak at a workshop, not even a keynote, but at a workshop talking about the five love languages because God has given them him this burden to uh, that uh, to, to, to steward this message and to help those in our world, uh, both churched and unchurched in this same manner. So I would just say, make sure that as you're working on whatever idea you're working on with the book, it's just, Hey, is this, is this a unique message? Is this written to like, who is this written to? And really narrowing that down. Um, and, and that's really what it was for this book. And and for my other ones too, it was like, okay, I, yeah, I I'm good. For the rest of my life, if I'm going to be talking about this book, that's how much I believe in it. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's like I, the book that I'm currently writing, um, you know, and I've, I I wrestled with it for probably a year because mm-hmm. I, I just, I, 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 I love writing. It's, it's the one skill that I have felt like I'm just like very good at like I just I went you know I, I love writing and it's something that comes very naturally to me and I'm very grateful for that and you know when I had this tragedy happen in my life I lost uh, I've talked about this quite a bit on this podcast so if people have listened week to week they already know the story but I um, a person who was the worship pastor at my home church he mm. and his daughter and his mother were killed by a mm. drunk driver 
And Mm. that was the first real tragedy that I endured. And that was for me the first time that I went through, um, I I don't, I guess, I guess crisis of faith would be the right term, but basically it was a time whenever I, you know, really started to question a lot of things and doubts started to creep in. And it's nothing new that other Christians haven't gone through, but for me, it was a very jarring process. And, um, I, I just have felt for like a year, I felt compelled that, you know, while this idea of tragedy and death and, you know, what, what all does this mean in the context of faith? It's nothing new. But one thing that I kept wrestling with was like, well, I don't have anything new to tell anybody. I'm not a Bible scholar. And my wife was like, well, nobody has your story. Nobody has your experience. And you can mm-hmm. share your experience yeah. and how you arrived with a stronger faith. And that's ultimately the message that I'm hoping to present to people. That and the idea that, you know, there's a lot of things in life that we just don't know and we won't mm-hmm. know. And that was kind of where I was at for a while where I was like, why does this happen? Why is this not the case? Why don't I know the answer to this? And it's like, because, and, and Barnabas does a great job in his book of saying, you know, like you just, it almost becomes an idol whenever you chase mm-hmm. after that. And so, yeah, like I, I guess to kind of go back to what I was trying to say is just that, you know, I sat for about a year on that before I really knew, like every day I've woken up and I've decided, I've thought, felt like I wanted to write this book. Yeah. And on the whole note about speed and addiction to instant and all of that stuff, I don't know if you've felt this way, but it was kind of like, oh, well, okay, this is the idea. I better do it right now before someone else writes this same thing. Yeah, I felt like that. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And that's because it's 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 just it's part of the air that we're breathing, right? This way that we've been conditioned for the instant. But but when you think about it, hey, a, a book is better when it comes out of a uh, a, a slow cooker than a microwave, yeah. right? So when you think about that, and you and you think about the concepts that you're working on, and 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 thinking about and wrestling through, it's like how do you how do you write it in a way that can really connect, and you can actually find joy in connecting. I mean, here's the thing: I have this pet peeve against books that are like 12 blog posts stitched together, uh, where basically yeah. every chapter is very isolated and they kind of all stand on their own and there's, or, you know, like 10 sermons put together kind of thing. And, and, yeah. and I, I know some of those books do well, but the reason I don't like that is because when you're reading a book, I, I want everything to stitch together. I want to find right. surprises. I want to find things in the book where I'm reading something. I was like, Oh, is this a follow-up from that? Uh, or, 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 oh, this is, I see how this is related to that. And, and you kind of see themes coming in over right. and over and over again. So that by the end you're like, oh, okay, I see. Now it's not a work of fiction, uh, and it's not necessarily a story, but especially with nonfiction, there's a sense of, okay, how do you, um, how do you, how do you make sure that the reader by the end of it has actually enjoyed the experience of reading they've learned? Right but they've enjoyed the experience of reading. And that's, I mean, that's, it's, it's a challenge and it takes quite a bit of time to know how to weave that together or even try to weave that together. But I I think that's one of the joys when an author is able to do that. Yeah. You mentioned just that idea of like the, the immediacy of it. And for me, it was heightened more so because of my experience in journalism where there was, Mm -hmm. I was, I've, I've been ingrained with this idea that, you want to be first with the news and you want yeah, to, you yeah. know, and so for me, it was like, I've got to get this book out there. And then, and so then, you know, whenever I would see books come out that were similar to what I wanted to do, I was guilty of feeling dejected and somewhat jealous. Uh, but then I have to realize like, you know, I'm working on my own time and I'm working on, you know, this idea that I feel like God has given me. And, and I mean, I'll, sometimes I go days without writing just because I, you know, schedule wise or whatever the case is, but you know, I have come to the idea that I have to accept that, you know, there's something, like you said, it's not something that can be microwaved. It's not an idea that I can just do overnight. And what I'm grateful for that, because what I have found, at least in my experience, is that since I've started the process of working on it, I have learned so many new things that I have wanted to add to the book that I would never have been able to, if I had written this and finished the project you know, very quickly into the process. And so I, I've been very grateful that, you know, my ideas for the book have expanded. My knowledge of this idea has expanded. And that's not to say that I'm going to keep spending years waiting on it just so I can learn more and more and more. But it has been nice to know that, like, God has rewarded this patience in the fact that I have learned more about what I'm trying to write and my eyes have been open and my perspective has changed. So I think, you know, for anybody else that's maybe writing a book that, I think is something that I can offer at least as an encouragement in my experience is that 
you know, you can't microwave the process because there's beauty in the process. There's beauty in learning and waiting and allowing things to happen on God's time. And that's been something that's been really hard for me. Um, and I, I keep going back to my experience in journalism, but it's such an industry where you're geared mentally to move up very quickly. And it's kind of like you're, you're it's a do- very dog eat dog world, especially now with how many cuts are happening in that industry. And so, you know, my mindset has always been to do quickly, do quickly, do quickly, get it done, get it done, get it done and keep moving up. And now it's like, no, I have to sit and be patient. So yeah, yeah. I just, that idea of waiting is great. Yeah. And there's also the sense of what is the Holy Spirit doing and what is the Holy Spirit trying to say to the church? So for example, it's interesting how my book came out February 4, 2020, and a few months before in October, 2019, two other books came out to hell with the hustle by Jefferson yep. uh, Bethke. And then uh, the ruthless elimination of hurry by, yep. by John Mark Comer. And when you look at those two books, Right. And and this sense and, and you bring my book along with those in a sense, they're really talking about work. They're talking about the changes in, in what's happening. And, and there's similarities in all three books, but they're not the same. Right. They're not the same. Right. And it's very easy to say, OK, wait a second. Um, I, you know, they stole my idea. I stole their idea or whatnot. And I was like, no, the reality is my manuscript was fully completed and submitted February or March, 2019, like months and months before any of these things came out. Right. And same with theirs. I mean, theirs, they didn't know about each other's, even though they did a podcast together. I mean, they didn't know about each other's while they were writing too. So it's, it's interesting how, um, there's seasons and there's messages that God has for the church in the West in particular. And it's interesting how this is that. So even with your book, right. I'm like, Hey, keep on getting at it. Keep on writing, keep on working on it. Right. And there's going to be a timing for that, that we're actually not really fully in control of. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned those two books because I brought those up several times because when I had Manda Carpenter on, you know, her uh, book is is called, her devotional is called space. And um, it's, very much similar, you know, to, to those. So you have those two books and then Rebecca Lyons and Emily Lay also wrote books very similar to that yeah, same topic. Right. And so, uh, and we have all four of them in this house and, you know, I'm working through reading those as well. And it's funny because I didn't know about those books and I'm not trying to put myself in their league by any means, but this, I, the name for my podcast in no hurry is along that same idea where it's kind of like, we need to take a step back and just yeah. kind of, and I, I mean, I, like I said, I'm nowhere near in their league of content and writing and all that kind of stuff. But it's just cool that there's been so much content coming out lately that has focused on that idea of yeah. slowing down. And it's like I think Mandy Carpenter put it best whenever I had her on the show. She said about four or five years ago, there was this mentality of hustle, 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 do, do, do. And now it's almost like we're just burnt out. We are just burnt <laughs> out of doing all that, that we're saying, you know what? We need to chill. Uh, we need to we need to relax, and we need to uh, allow ourselves some space to be with God and to hear what God is trying to tell us. So, I, I personally, I think it's awesome that there have been so many influential voices that have been speaking on that issue because, like like, like you write about, I mean, people put their identity in what they do. That that becomes who they are, and your message. And I, I don't want to speak for you, but at least what I get out of this is like. No, like you are who God tells you you are. You are beautiful. Mm-hmm. You are loved. You are all sorts of other things. You're not what you do or how you were raised or what you know and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I just, yeah, it's it's awesome how there's so many pieces of content out there that are speaking directly on that issue of hurry, hustle, doing, all of that. Yeah, so good. So good, man. Uh, so one of the things, one of the things I always like to ask my guests, um, and you can kind of use any sort of time benchmark that you need to, but I always like to ask them, you know, what are you learning about God lately? And so I don't know if there's, uh, you know, some kind of a time frame that, that you can think of that maybe there was a demarcation of where you started, you know, to feel differently, but I guess, what are you, what have you learned about God lately or what are you learning about God currently? 
Yeah, uh, we recently moved back, so here in Bowling Green, and I'm very familiar with that because my wife and I and our three kids lived in Nashville for the last five years, and and we thought we were going to be there for a really long time. We love the city. I mean, it's I mean it's an incredible city, and loved our life there. Loved what I was doing, and it was just yeah. There's so much about our life there that was just good. It was really, really good. As Canadians, we even got our green cards too. And I mean, that was a long <laughs> and expensive process. So I was like, okay, we're good. We're going to be here forever now. And and as we sensed that, um, it was interesting how God began to unsettle our hearts. And he began unsettling our hearts and we really had no idea why. And as I went to uh, come back to Edmonton to speak at my previous church here and and lead a staff retreat, that's when God came and knocking. <laughs> and he yep. was like, I want you to trust me and I want you to move back here. And we were like, why would we go back to Edmonton? It's like winter, six months out of the year. And <laughs> I mean, Nashville is amazing. I mean, it's like, it's honestly such a fun fun city and we died to ourselves. we died to our plans we died to all that and and as we did that we we're like okay god you know our lives for christina and i uh it's like our lives are yours our lives are yours and and here's the crazy thing too right i mean a lot of our, our moving had been driven by my work but um for the last few years my wife and i have we we have a podcast um, that I, I have my other podcast, but I do a podcast with my wife called the in between, like my last name M, in between podcast on marriage, parenting, faith and everything in between. And, and as we were doing that, it was incredible. I mean, we're still doing it, but at that moment, I, it was just so encouraging to me to see how God was growing her voice as a stay at home mom, who is a previously social worker, counselor, and had kind of stepped away from all that for a long time. I just saw her flourishing. And I'm like, yeah. and God, you want us to move? You want us to move? And one of my pastor friends, he put it well. He was like, you know, when anytime God wants to move you, uh, he's actually going to be preparing a place over there first. And then when that place is completely ready, he's going to come and like a good father, like a good gardener, begin loosening the soil underneath you. He's not going to just rip you out, uh, but he's going to loosen the soil underneath you. And, and as a good father, as a good shepherd, he's going to he's going to take you out gently. And it's still going to hurt because if you've ever taken out a plant and even if you've gone deep enough, there's still going to be some seed, you know, there a little bit of roots at the bottom, right? I mean, that's that there still yep. is a bit of resistance, but it would, it's not as much as if you pulled it from the top, right? And there is right. that pain, but then God's going to then shift you over to that new place that he's prepared ahead of you. And, and that's clearly what God had been doing uh, in Edmonton and um, for us to move back here. Uh, with the leadership position that I've taken here at the church. It's just, yeah, it's just incredible. So there's a sense of, okay, God, you know, you know, timing, you know, everything, you know, just, I mean, every single thing. And here's the crazy thing, Cole, I wrote this book to primarily, primarily I wrote it to the de-churched and the unchurched, really those who have walked away from Jesus or those who don't know who Jesus is, or, or maybe those who do know who Jesus is, but he's kind of that Sunday Sunday thing, or, you know, it's just, it's out there. It's kind of cultural Christianity. And I really wrote it for them because it was a sense of, Hey, just, just be aware of what you might be living your life according to. Right. And, and I wrote this book. Um, and, and my prayer all throughout the book was that God, would you use this? Would you use this to draw the lost children of God back to you? Like, would you use this to draw people to yourself? And yesterday, actually, at the time of this recording, I was on this other guy's podcast who the guy doesn't believe in Jesus, is not a Christian. I mean, Real syndicated player. on the radio, all this stuff. And he wanted to interview me on the podcast. And and it was he was like, at the end of it all, he was like, okay, so what's the truth on the other side? And I was like, well, actually, it's Jesus. Right. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and thirsty, and I'll give you rest. The only rest and answer to all this is Jesus. And he's like, well, yeah, or Buddha. Right. I mean, it's I mean, kind of all religions lead to the same thing. And, and I was like, well, actually, no, because every other religion says, do this, do that, do this. You know, you are what you do. Always all these lies. And then maybe, maybe one day, who knows, you, you'll actually never know on this side of eternity, but maybe you'll make it. And maybe you'll be good enough to get to that place. Whereas Jesus says, done. 
right? Done. You're not who you do. You're what I have done and it is finished. And all you have to do is turn your eyes toward me and follow me. And he didn't really know how to respond to that. He was like, okay, okay. And <laughs> right. So it's just that that's what I've been learning this sense of, okay, God, I, you know, way more than I do. And you care way more about my church than I do. And you care way more about um, the lost than I do. So God, I give you this book. Yeah, we had a, a very, I guess, similar experience. I mean, I was very rooted in my hometown at the job that I had. I mean, I was uh, an English teacher. I was in charge of the yearbook, the newspaper, the boys and girls tennis coach, just very involved in that community. And my friends are there. My family was there. And it was a big deal for me to move. But mm. I knew that, you know, when my wife got this awesome opportunity, that that was what was best for us. And it was hard. I mean, there was some tears shed. There was, you know, a lot of just uncomfortable feelings, like you said, but there were so many things. And I've written about this already in the chapters that I've written for my book. But I just mm. there were so many things that pointed like God saying, I'm I'm pulling you there. Like, this is where you need to be. And it was at the right time because there were, you know, truthfully, whenever we got married, I kind of always knew that we would probably end up back here. Um, mm. Just to long story short, it's very difficult to get a, a license in marriage and family counseling in Indiana, mm. whereas in Kentucky, it's a little bit different. It's not as stringent. So just logistically, we knew it kind of made a little bit more sense for Emily to work here. And if mm. I wanted to keep teaching, I could get a job here. But, um, you know, just because of my own personal goals, like you said, being closer to Nashville actually benefits me a little, little bit more. There's a lot more opportunities there for what I want to do. And, and just being an hour away actually works out a little better for me. But um, yeah, it was really hard to leave my hometown. It was hard to leave the job that I loved. I had uh, gone back to school to get a teaching license. Mm. And, um, you know, that was a, a big career change for me just to leave journalism to, because I felt very much like I was ditching something that I had wanted to do for my whole life because I mm. just knew, you know, financially it didn't make as much sense. So to leave that job that I loved to move down here to where we didn't really have a lot of friends, it, it was very much uh, a faith event for us where we really had to have that faith. And so I just, yeah, I mean, your experience that you describe is kind of I just triggered, you know, it's very similar to what we went through and very similar emotions that we felt too. So I, I'm happy where we're at. It's still, you know, we're still in that adjustment period and, you know, we're mm. uh, getting pretty involved with our church and, you know, finally starting to make some friends and some friends from church, which has been great. Um, and, and it was great because the, the church that we go to uh, is the church that we always would go to whenever we would visit Emily's parents. And the pastor at that church is the one that married us. We actually got married here in Bowling Green. So there were a lot of things that were in place for us that, yeah. you know, it wasn't like we were moving to a completely new town, which I was thankful for, but it's still hard. And it's very difficult to, to trust Jesus in those moments. Even if we want to hold tightly to what we have, we know yeah. that he's pulling us elsewhere, but we still say as humans, you know what? No, I want to stay right here. Yeah, and that's true. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the other questions that I always like to ask uh, is kind of the final question I always like to ask my guests because the show, you know, the show is called In No Hurry. And so I always like to ask people, like, what do you do to kind of slow down? I mean, obviously, you've got a family, you've got a wife and kids, you know, what do you, I guess, individually and as a family, what do you guys do when life is crazy, whenever you're super busy? What do you do to kind of pull back and uh, just kind of give yourself some space to, to be rather than to do? Yeah. So I don't necessarily believe in a, in a traditional kind of nine to five and then a two day weekend. I mean, yeah, the gig economy, there's that side of it all too. Right. But, but honestly, I believe, uh, I believe in the Sabbath and that we need to go hard six days so that we can rest on the seventh. And I mean, my wife and I podcast for fun. I mean, right now it's so late for you right now. I mean, I'm on mountain <laughs> time, you're in central and, and here's the thing. It's like, this is normal for me. We're going to, I'm going to work during the day and then come home, connect with the kids, help put them to bed. And, and then we're going to go and do other stuff, our podcast or my book, my writing or any of this kind of stuff. Right. So it's just like, we're going to go, 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 go. But then on Monday and Monday's our Sabbath, it's like, we're going to rest and we're going to, mm -hmm. we're not going to do anything that we need to do. I'm off social media. I'm off emails as well. I'm not completely off the phone. Cause I like, playing games once in a while, <laughs> <laughs> especially Mario Kart. Uh, yep. So, 
so it's it's a sense of you know we're gonna rest we're gonna go hard for six days and then we're gonna rest hard on the seventh day and honestly that's what we do right that's what we do and and i'm not saying that we don't watch a movie here and there during the week and we don't watch shows at night and you know occasionally we'll do that but really it's it's i find my rest that sabbath is huge but every morning one of the first things i do when i get up is i'm spending that time with god I'm spending that time in the Bible. I'm spending that time in prayer before I go off to the gym, before I go off to work. Right, that's the first thing that I do because I need to, I need to set my priorities right. Right, and I need to realize and and it's really admit it's it's admitting and it's a declaration both in time and attitude and priority that hey, actually, everything that I do is an overflow of what Jesus has done for me, and it's ultimately all for Him. So. That's how I'm going to live my life. Yeah. How can the listeners find you if they want to connect with you? Yeah. So the easiest thing to do is to go to danielm.com. My last name is two letters, I-M, danielm.com. And you can find links to social media, my books, things that I'm writing recently and all that. You can you can find it there. But if you're on social media, if you're on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook right now, just look up Daniel Sangi, S-A-N-G-I. That's my Korean name, Daniel at Daniel Sangi, and you'll be able to find me there. Awesome. Well, Daniel, thank you for, for joining this podcast and thank you for writing this book. Uh, I think it's so needed right now. And I hope that the you know, listeners will, will want to go pick up this book. And I'll have a link in the show notes and everything for you know your website and where they can buy the book as well. So I just I I'm so thankful that I got to read this and get to talk to you about it because you know I I really I really think this is something that a lot of people will need to read right now. So thank you for putting this out there and thank you for sharing your thoughts on it. Awesome. Thanks Cole. I'm so grateful for that conversation and I hope you guys enjoyed hearing from Daniel about his newest book. I just really think that there's so much truth in this book talking about where we find our identity versus where we should be finding our contentment. So I really hope you guys pick up a copy of this. I'll have a link in the show notes for information on how to buy this book. Basically, if you head to his website, like he said, you'll find all of the information on how to buy this book. Also, please make sure you give Daniel a follow. I've got his social media links in the show description as well. Please reach out to him. Let him know that you enjoyed hearing him on this show. Also, if you guys need me at all, you can find me, Cole Claiborne, on pretty much any platform. I would love to hear from you guys about this show. Also, if you've got time, I would love if you would take the time to leave a review on this podcast. It just really helps other people know that this is a show that they might enjoy hearing. So thank you guys for tuning in. Hope you guys find some time this week to relax and not be in a hurry. And we'll see you next week.